Welcome to a new episode of the Estit podcast. It is my great pleasure to welcome as a guest today, Sabine Reuser. Uh, Sabine, you are professor of ethics at Delft University of Technology, where you head the ethics, uh, the ethics and philosophy of technology section. And you're also vice program leader of the research consortium ethics of socially disruptive technologies. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you. And by the way, I'm no longer the head of the ethics and philosophy of technology section, but actually of the overarching department of values, technology and innovation. Right, right, right. Thanks for correcting that. So, so if I'm well informed, your philosophical research career, it started out in, in metaethics, where you worked on the nature of moral knowledge. And, and later this took a turn to technology with an increasing focus on intuitions and emotions about technological risk. And you have published articles as well as monographs on these topics. We'll, we'll put on some, some links to the episode. And I am particularly happy to discuss today with you a topic that seems to have become increasingly prominent in your recent work uh, at the intersection of risk, emotions and art. And, and, and before getting to art, though, let's perhaps start with your general view about technological risk and emotions. So I've recently attended an, a, a presentation of yours on art and emotional del deliberation about technology. And in that presentation, you stated the, the cliche view that emotional decision-making is irrational. And you noted that this is the view that you've been trying to debunk over the last 20 years. So, so I would like to start uh, ambitiously by asking you to condense these 20 years of debunking into a single answer and, and to recap for the listeners, why is this view erroneous? Thank you very much, uh, Jeroen, um, for giving me this opportunity to talk about my uh, work and about specifically also this aspect. So, um, yeah, uh, already in my PhD thesis, which was indeed on metaethics, I studied the role of emotions and intuitions for moral knowledge, and I developed an account according to which um, our ethical intuitions are paradigmatically cognitive moral emotions thereby providing an alternative to the dominant views in metaethics that are either in the sentimentalist or the rationalist camp, with the sentimentalists uh, arguing in, in the tradition of David Hume that uh, ethical thinking is grounded in emotions, emotions are irrational, hence ethics is subjective. This is a very, very short and crude summary uh, of, of that very complex and rich tradition. The alternative, the rationalists, uh, uh, going back also to Immanuel Kant, who also think that emotions are irrational, but because they argue that um, ethics is objective, they argue hence um, ethical reasoning has to be uh, done by reason, rationality only. And uh, I have developed this uh, meta-ethical theory, uh, which I called effectual um, intuitionism, where I build on the work of the ethical intuitionists who typically used to be also rationalists uh, with sometimes a little bit of room for the emotions, but not a lot, because they've followed the same reasoning as this, this Kenshin paradigm that I just sketched. Uh, but then I replaced this subjective view of the emotions, this irrational view of the emotions with uh, a type of theories of emotion that is very, very dominant in philosophy and psychology of emotion, namely cognitive theories of emotions. 
And according to cognitive theories of emotions, this whole reason emotion dichotomy that we take so much for granted in psychology, in philosophy, but also in public debates is actually uh, uh, wrong, mistaken. Um, to give you my specific take on, on a cognitive theories of emotions, I would see affective and rational states or cognitive states as being on a spectrum where you might have on each side of the spectrum purely affective states and maybe purely cognitive, purely rational states, but actually uh, the middle of the spectrum is filled by states that are complex compounds uh, um, of affective and, co uh, and cognitive states. Uh, and also uh, paradigmatically that there are moral emotions where the combination of the affective and the cognitive are uh, uh, inseparable they're really intertwined so it's not a coincidental combination it's not a causal order you first have a cognition that gives rise to an effective response there are theories that argue for that there are other theories you say that say uh, we have this primacy of effect according to some psychology researchers that gives rise to certain rational responses and then we could call that conglomerate a cognitive emotion I um, have this very liberal view where I say that's, that's all possible, but don't, do not forget about this very, very important category of states that are affective and cognitive at the same time. And we cannot really uh, uh, take them apart, apart that two sides of the same coin, as it were. Think about a moral emotion like, for example, shame or guilt. Mm -hmm. When you feel guilty, you feel the pangs of guilt, but you also have the conviction that you did something wrong. They're inseparable. If somebody would say, yeah, no, I did something wrong. It doesn't really do much to me. I don't feel anything about it. We would say, you don't really understand. You don't fully grasp what it means to have done something wrong. The, the pangs of guilt are not just a nasty add-on. They are really crucial to the full understanding of the wrongness of your action. They really provide you with profound understanding of the moral dimensions. Um, and on the other hand, if somebody would say, I feel so bad about something, even though I know I didn't do anything wrong, we would call that, uh, yeah, a, a misplaced feeling of guilt. So they're really intertwined. And it's not just, I first see that I did something wrong and then I feel bad. That may be possible, but, but it, it, it happens at the same time. And, and there it's, it's the, the feeling really crucially contributes to the to the uh, understanding. So it really, the, the affective aspect really plays in a crucial epistemological role. Mm -hmm. and, and and this this answer already goes some way to the next question I wanted to ask you, namely that emotions they seem to be indispensable in your account also for moral deliberation, right? Um, um, perhaps you can elucidate a little bit more still what that positive role amounts to, right? So how how do we actually use or deploy our emotions in processes of emotional deliberation? What does emotional deliberation amount to? Thank you. Yeah, so um, there are some philosophers of emotions who say, okay, emotions are important to figure out what people as a matter of fact value, but then as a next step, we have to engage in rational reflection to sort the bad emotions from the good emotions, as it were. And I would say uh, we do have to sort the good and the bad emotions because not every emotion is justified, obviously, uh, just like all our other ways of understanding, seeing the world can be mistaken. Uh, however, I do not think that the solution is to always just invoke rationality to 
to judge our emotions because actually it can also work the other way around that we uh, with our emotions we can correct fallacious rational uh, reasoning so think about climate change for example we know that it's a problem we know that it's uh, induced by human behavior uh, but we also know that we find it challenging to do something about it uh, we know from empirical studies that a lot of people use uh, the following uh, reasoning, um, my contribution is so small and futile, so I can just go ahead with my more selfish uh, uh, behavior, like flying to Ibiza, whatever, um, because it's just uh, such a small contribution anyway. But we, of course, we also know that it's uh, exactly that type of reasoning that creates the whole problem. But from a, from a certain a form of rationality, actually exactly the one that is uh, also praised by economists, where we uh, maximize our self-interest, that type of rationality uh, could uh, uh, be seen as um, a justification of this selfish approach. So this type of free rider behavior that actually is part of the problem. Now, em an emotional deliberation could correct this rational, uh, uh, fallacious rational reasoning by saying, uh, uh, we actually have to uh, feel sympathy and compassion with victims of climate change who have probably never flown in the first place. Uh, and we have to take our own responsibility here and we should feel uh, have feelings of solidarity and compassion. So uh, here, actually an emotion can correct our fallacious, very rationalistic reasoning. Uh, and then as a, so, and of course, there, there can be cases where a rational reflection can correct our fallacious emotions. Um, so, for example, my fear of flying might be uh, based, uh, can be corrected maybe by better information about statistical risks, um, or uh, when it comes to maybe my uh, uh, prejudices can be corrected by uh, better information. Um, but um, there's also the possibility that our emotions can correct our emotions. So for example, think indeed about um, prejudices, biases that we all have that, are, that can pop up by our more spontaneous gut reaction kind of emotions. And then we need to appeal to other types of emotions with ourselves. And that is part of the deliberation in ourselves, but also with others, where we can appeal to feelings of compassion, care for others, solidarity, trying to understand other people's viewpoints. And that is a deliberative exercise. It means that we have to reflect, that we have to engage in critical thinking, but it's not a purely cognitive, not a purely rational, detached exercise. It also really involves um, uh, emotions. And like the example I gave before, by feeling certain types of emotions, I can get a more profound understanding of, for example, the wrongness of my initial emotional response. Uh, so emotions can help to correct emotions. Yeah. That's very interesting. So there's this corrective role and emotions can also point to certain values. They can sort of be sort of indicators of what we actually value, right? And now I would like to, to try to connect that to the topic of arts and, and, and also the topic of technological risk, right? So, so you emphasize the importance of this kind of emotional deliberation for decision-making about technological risks. And in recent work, you have foregrounded in several writings that art can be conducive to such deli deliberation. I mean, that, that's connecting quite, quite a range of different topics. Um, so so, so I'm, I'm curious to hear more about that. And specifically, what is the, the special contribution that art can make here? Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, maybe 
starting with the last point first and then uh, going a few steps back. Um, so I just mentioned how imagination or compassion uh, can help to correct our own emotions um, and, and feeding with somebody else. And here, works of art, for example, uh, can play an important role by, for example, I can overcome my prejudices maybe by watching a movie about um, uh, from the perspective of somebody uh, against whom I have certain prejudices and thereby help me overcome these prejudices. Uh, through compassion, imagination, by really imaginatively engaging with the viewpoint of another person and understanding their perspective. So that's the general idea, and quite a number of philosophers have written about it, most prominently um, recently, uh, Martha Nussbaum uh, has written about this a lot. Um, so I will put this now to the side for a moment and come back to this, uh, uh, because I first want to explain uh my ideas about the role of emotions in moral deliberation about technological risks and then i will make the step again uh, to connect it with art mm -hmm. so uh um i guess in the whole estet podcast series it already has become very very clear that there's so many ethical aspects related to technological developments uh, and uh, uh this is something that a few decades ago was not so much on the foreground of lots of people mind, in people's mind there were many philosophers working on this but this has changed tremendously but uh the role of emotions is still typically uh not taken very much seriously because people typically still uh take this very dualistic view of emotions as the starting point where emotions will only um lead to distortion and uh, irrational insights um, and should then be evaded. And then specifically in the context of risk, this is a very dominant view. Uh, a lot of approaches from psychology and decision theory, for example, related to uh, risk perception, decision-making under uncertainty, uh, endorse a framework that has been developed amongst others by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, uh, dual process theory, it's also very much popularized by his book Thinking Fast and Slow, that maybe a lot of uh, our listeners have uh, heard about or even read, and there the idea is it's also very much this dichotomy between reason and emotion, and emotions are basically the bad cop, and <laughs> reason the good cop, so um, emotions are fast, spontaneous, but get things wrong uh, very easily, and uh, belong to what Kahneman and others called system one and then we have system two in order to correct uh, these spontaneous responses that are also typically emotional supposedly uh, and uh, we need reason for that now you can already imagine that given my theoretical framework that I sketched in the beginning that I do not agree with the with the assumptions <laughs> um, and of course there can be cases where uh, there is this uh, dichotomous uh, phenomenon that that they're working on but I deny that this describes all the uh, emotional responses to risk so um, uh, uh, I argue that first of all thinking about risk does not only require scientific insights but also ethical insights that's step one and then the second step is <clears throat> emotions actually help us be to be sensitive to exactly these ethical aspects of risk uh, think about for example technological risks related to um, specific energy technology um, and the risks emanating from that technology take an example uh, for example uh, 
drilling of gas. We have had this in the Netherlands where we had earthquakes in Groningen in the north of the Netherlands. And people there have been very concerned about the safety of their houses, for example. Um, uh, for a long time, the Dutch government said, well, the experts have said that it's all safe. Um, uh, and the Groningen people in the end were, uh, it turned out that they were right, that there were these uh, risks to their houses, uh, severe damages to the houses. Uh, so first of all, factually, they were right, but there was also a justice component because they said, well, you know, everybody in the Netherlands is profiting from the, the very uh, cheap natural gas that we have in the Netherlands. But actually the burden is only on the population living in Groningen where these gas fields are. So there, there's this whole topic of energy justice, for example, and the risks involved in any uh, energy technology, for example, there were always risks and benefits. And it's not just a, a matter of measuring these uh, and uh, adding them up, because first of all, how to measure the risks and the benefits, the impacts is already involves ethical questions, but also how to distribute the risk and benefits also involves ethical issues. So there's already an important value dimension to thinking about technological risks. And then my argument is that emotions can play an important role in highlighting these ethical aspects of risk. Now, now I would like to hear more to bridge this to, to art, right? Because- Yes, so exactly. So how would art come in here? There are already so many steps that are very uh, controversial for a lot of people. Why? Why is ethics involved in thinking about risk? Why are emotions involved in thinking about risk? Okay, I hope to already have clarified why I think <laughs> both are really important. And then the third uh, controversial thing, let's uh, involve art here. How could that play a role? Well, the thing is that when it comes to specifically uncertain, risky developments and um, very complex developments, that we have to speculate about the future. And it's not just a matter of uh, measuring things uh, and statistics, because it's often also unclear what the possible effects could be in the first place, let alone how likely it is that they come about. And then also how desirable they are, what are the, the good aspects and the less uh, desired aspects. And that involves a lot of, um, uh, yeah, uh, demands a lot of our imagination also and well who are better in imagining things than artists they can help us uh, to make very abstract problems that are far away in the future more concrete by bringing them closer by think about uh, novels such as brave new world or 1984 that many many people have read and really are very iconic also in deliberation about digital technologies. Uh, we often think about Big Brother, for example, 1984, or think about genetic modification, where uh, often Brave New World is invoked as uh, a, a frame of reference to think about, but we could actually, uh, it could actually happen that we go down that road. Do we want that? And if we don't want that, this is almost a rhetorical question. If we don't want that, how do we prevent that we do go down this road? Uh, science fiction literature can play this role, but also movies, but also there are more and more uh, visual artists working with or, and or related to technological uh, developments. They work with genetic modification, uh, for example, or they, they uh, develop uh, sculptures that represent human-animal hybrids, like uh, Patricia Piccinini has uh, developed such sculptures, for example, that really challenge all kinds of emotional responses between disgust, care, 
uh, uh, fearfulness. And these emotional responses can help to reflect about, okay, what are the ethical implications of this technology? Mm -hmm. All right, so, so, so I see the connection you're making there. And I think it's quite interesting. And you know, I specifically like the, the, your, your invoking uh, conceptual art and visual art, which I think is, is more original because, I mean, and novels, they've been discussed by philosophers before, but there's been much less attention for this conceptual art and, and, and how this might play a role in sort of, you know, triggering debate and emotions about technological risks. So um, I'm, I'm curious if, if there are all these different kinds of art, right? I mean, literature, film, music, performing arts, conceptual arts. Um, are you particularly interested in having common in terms of triggering moral deliberation? Or do you think you might also distinguish between different kinds of art and different ways in which they are specifically attuned to uh, uh, fostering certain kinds of debates or certain kinds of uh, imaginations, whereas other kinds of art might, might work better for other kinds of imaginations. Do you differentiate between these kinds of art? Yeah, thanks. Uh, great question. I think um, as with everything about my theoretical framework that I have developed, uh, there are certain generic patterns, but on the other hand, there are also always unique features. So for example, I have this generic framework on risk and emotion and ethics. Um, but then when you dive into the details of one specific technology, then different ethical aspects and different emotional responses will play a role. And I think the same will hold for these artworks. So we can say in general that artworks have certain capacities or enable us to, do, uh, to, to engage in certain ways of reflecting that go beyond what we can do with a philosophical essay or conversation. Um, but how they do that, uh, will be uniquely different, I think, per artwork. Um, we might also uh, need different artworks to understand, to see ethical implications of different types of technologies. Plus, they might also work out differently for different people. So there are people much more visually uh, minded than others. I think a lot of philosophers are not so visually inclined, typically. That's why they, when they write about art at all, they typically write about literature and music. Uh, so there could already be a little bit of a professional bias, just because philosophy is a very uh, uh, linguistic, conceptual discipline that, um, yeah, it attracts different people. And, um, and so in that sense, uh, and, and the same might hold with other types of audiences. Um, so I think it's important also because every artwork would also, it will help us in our reflection, but it might introduce new and different uh, biases. And, 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 and in that sense, it's also good to have a diversity of artworks available. And I think a novel, for example, can, it's, it's maybe in a certain sense closer to philosophical reflection because um, you can really uh, yeah, engage in a certain, by a narrative, you can also explore a way of reasoning, for example. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, a visual artwork, for example, can lead to a much more visceral experience of a confrontation with a possible technological development that is still far away in the future, but it can bring it really, really close by uh, in a much more, uh, yeah, tangible way than maybe a novel can be, but it's much less articulate what the ethical uh, implications might be. So in that sense, they, they have different strengths uh, and can help us in different ways 
So, so, so let me let me play devil's advocate for a moment, and uh, perhaps an artwork might evoke these sort of strong emotions. But then again, um, perhaps it does so in a way that is entirely unrealistic, right? And thinking about technological risks, we we seem to want to think about things that might actually happen and that are really worth our, our, our concern, right? So, do you think that that artwork should be sort of constrained in some some kind of way in order to steer our imaginations here in the right kind of direction? Or would you say to the contrary that that there is distinct merit in in distorting and in dis disrupting or or, or or default narratives and or sort of rational constraints uh, when fueling fueling or, or moral imaginations? Thanks. Also, great question, and uh, I think this is a real challenge when thinking about the potential collaboration with artists, for example, when it comes to ethical deliberation and emotional deliberation about risky technologies. Uh, on the one hand, I think what is definitive about art is that it's non-instrumental, that it's non-constrained. And on the other hand, yes, if you want these artworks to really fulfill a purpose, it's almost impossible to not give any constraints. So here's, here's a possible tension. And it probably also depends on, for example, is there really an assignment from uh, somebody to an artist make an artwork that can help us in ethical deliberation? Then you might have to agree in the first place, but well, should fulfill certain criteria and maybe be uh, partially, at least, uh, yeah, there should be a reality check. But on the other hand, if an, if an independent artist is working in their studio on something and comes with something really outrageous where the experts say this will never, ever happen, uh, yeah, there's nobody there who could tell the artist not to do that, of course. Uh, it could actually still fulfill a purpose. First of all, it could be that something that at that time, point in time, seems totally impossible to the experts actually later might still turn out to be realistic. Uh, that's one thing. Um, also, um, it could even inspire certain technological developments, um, hopefully specifically those that we find desirable, <laughs> not the ones that we do not find desirable. Uh, and even if it's totally outrageous and really completely unrealistic, that can also help to sharpen um, uh, the reflection, for example, by saying, okay, this is maybe something that a lot of people associate with this technology. And now we know, we have articulated that that's one of those things, but actually we can really confirm that this, this is technically really impossible. So it can also help in that deliberation. So, um, uh, and it should always be part of an open dialogue. Um, so what I really would find problematic to just see this as a communication tool or a marketing tool. There's a technological developer who thinks this is a great technology, but people are scared of it. Now we hire an artist to make it beautiful and acceptable. That's just marketing, that, that's not art. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so, so it, it's okay if an artwork disrupts, if it um, unsettles, uh, that can fulfill different purposes. If that's the only uh, if that's the only thing that the artwork does, then that can also be, uh, yeah, you can even challenge then whether the artistic merit is really that profound if it's only about shocking, for example. So it's it's complicated because you know uh, it's already hard to to figure out what what is ethically the right thing to do. and then what is what is a good artwork is another challenge. So 
bringing in art, I know, makes things more complicated, brings in lots of new challenges, but I think it also, yeah, offers a lot of possibilities uh, that we should not forego. And, and I wonder uh, whose, whose possibilities are they? Who are the beneficiaries here? Um, I, I guess you could try to make a distinction between um, between academic philosophers on the one hand and between the general public and general public debate on the other hand. Uh, you're, you're mentioning an open dialogue. So who are taking part of this dialogue? Do you imagine that's mostly a dialogue of public debate or do you think that philosophical experts might also benefit from, from these kind of uh, art, art triggered insights in their reflections on technological risks? Thanks. Uh, I think both. Also, because I think that professional philosophers will, in general, be often inspired by public debates. Uh, I uh, I really think that we often hear arguments and concerns in public debate that can be further examined by philosophers and can give rise new to new ethical insights uh, that should inform philosophers. Uh, I don't think that philosophers are always necessarily better in ethical decision-making than the public. They might be better in analyzing all the implications of a certain way of argumentation and really see all the, the yeah, what a certain way of reasoning, for example, implies and how to embed that in different theoretical contexts, for example. But I think that often we, we see a lot of really important insights in public debates. So if the artwork helps in public ethical, emotional, moral deliberation that it will already for that reason uh, uh, also inspire and form philosophical reflection. But even if it would just be the artist and the philosopher, I am tempted to say uh, art is philosophizing with other means, <laughs> but also in a different way. So it's not just articulating a philosophical argument, but actually also inspiring and evoking philosophical arguments. Mm -hmm. Thanks. So, Sabina, I, I would like to finish with two questions, one of which uh, concerns your, your personal background. So you, you're currently working as a philosopher. You have been over, over two decades, I guess, but, but you also went to, to art school before that. And you used yes. to work as an artist and, and, and perhaps you still make artworks. I'm not sure about that. Um, but but I, I do wonder, have you ever approached this topic the other way around? So not as a philosopher, but as an artist who tries to evoke te technological risks in, in her work. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I first went to, uh, to study fine arts, despite all the warnings of my dad who thought I should study mathematics or engineering <laughs> and not something like this, but uh, I had to uh, study fine arts first. You said that I worked as an artist, but to be honest, uh, I tried to survive as an artist and it, my dad was very right, it was impossible. <laughs> so I very quickly, uh, the only way to, uh, to stay alive was uh, the, uh, to, um, to enroll in university again. So that's when I switched to political science and philosophy and philosophy turned out to be the thing for me. Um, I always hoped back then that I would be able to make art again. Um, but whenever I, uh, I had the chance, I thought, okay, um, maybe I should invest my time in my philosophical work instead. Um, so I've done just a little bit of art on the side, but not seriously, because I know in order to make good art, you really, it's, it's hard and it's requires a lot of, uh, yeah, invest, investing time and resources. And uh, yeah, so I, I really fully switched to philosophy. However, on the cover of my first monograph, uh, at least the original edition, uh, Moral Emotions and Intuitions, it actually um, has a compilation of my 
artworks for my final degree uh, at Maastricht Academy of Fine Arts. And, uh, uh, but indeed I have never worked with technolo technology related art. I actually painted very, very old fashioned. I love painting, <laughs> but uh, uh, at a certain point I, I heard from somebody about, um, yeah, that there are people working on bio art, et cetera. So I started to look into this and then I realized, hey, but this really brings everything together uh, for my own biography. Um, but then I studied from a philosophical point of view rather than making the art myself. Yeah. I've come over this. I can now deal philosophically with art without feeling just the failed artist. <laughs> well, well, one of the one of the, the 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 good consequences of this career choice, I guess, is that now you're vice program leader of the Estetic <laughs> program and on the ethics of socially disruptive technologies. And, and my final question pertains to that program and, and more specifically to this notion of disruption. You mentioned a couple of times before that artworks can, can disrupt, can have this disruptive potential, right? So it's not just technologies that can be disruptors, but also artworks. And, and I'm, I'm curious to hear a bit more about that. What is disrupt? What is, what is disruption by means of art? And is there, are there any commonalities between the kind of disruptions that we're considering in the program, technological disruptions and, and disruptions by artworks? Or, or how do you understand this disruptive potential of artwork? Thank you. Yeah, in the program, in the ESTED program, we look at socially disruptive technologies, but also at the disruption of our concepts through these socially disruptive technologies. And I think this, the latter, that's probably where the disruptive potential of art and of these technologies come together and uh, can inform each other. I think, um, I mean, art can also be disruptive to society, of course. Uh, but maybe a lot of technologies have much more, are much more powerful in doing that uh, for better or worse. Um, but artworks can disrupt our thinking and feeling, it can disrupt our conventional concepts, just like these technologies, it can help us to rethink these concepts. And then artworks that are engaged with technology can then help us in the ethical reflection on the disruption the social and conceptual disruption of these technologies. So, for example, we will now start a new uh, postdoc project uh, um, uh, on within the ESTED program that I will supervise on the art of climate solidarity. So we look at how artworks that engage with climate change can help us reflect on our conventional uh, democratic concepts, for example, that are very much individualistic uh, which are insufficient to deal with such huge challenges such as climate change, where we need concepts that are much more focused on solidarity and care that are much more emphasized in non-Western and feminist traditions of philosophy, but that can also be invoked by these artworks by making the impact of climate change much more tangible, much more concrete. Uh, also, the, for example, the victims of climate change, bring them closer by, um, so in that sense, there's this, yeah, this integration of the uh, disruption that can be caused by an artwork by maybe causing a sleepless night, for example, about the artwork, but also about um, climate change, for example, and maybe thereby helping us um, to engage more in actions of solidarity, rethink our democratic institutions that are totally unsuitable for these huge complex 
uh, long-term challenges that we're facing. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Sabina. On, on, on that important note, uh, thank you so much for this rich exposition of your work. It was a pleasure to have you on the on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>